And Lord, I pray that you'd help me now as I open up the scriptures and I ask that you'd fill me, Lord, with even more love for you, love for your Holy Son, Jesus, love for your word, love for the flock here, and give me clarity of mind and guard me from seeing anything that wouldn't be in accord with your scriptures. And let us all focus on your word and learn your word together, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good. Well, I, I recently had to um, apply, reapply for a, a life insurance policy. And, you, and I've had this happen a couple of times before. You know, they send a nurse out to your house who takes, you know, way too much blood out of your arm, you know. And, and, um, and then they, they go away. And then a couple of weeks later, you get this detailed report in the mail about every single thing about your blood you could ever and a whole lot you don't even know about right so all about your protein levels and sugar levels and hdl and ldl cholesterol and and you know what the parameters are supposed to be in the whole thing and thankfully i was within the parameters but it just struck me as i was thinking about it what amazing blessings we have in terms of medical technology because you know 100 years ago you could have a problem in your blood that could have been correctable that, that would result in a serious health problem and not know about it ahead of time, not be able to take steps to deal with it, right? But now, you know, you just get a routine test and you get find out problems you can take care of, stuff that you can address. It's amazing how, how we have ways of diagnosing, like, the health of our blood so that we can take steps to correct correctable things. And it just what struck me about that, as I was thinking about this passage this morning, is that God has given us a way to diagnose our spiritual health. Our spiritual health is clear ways he lays out in his word that we can diagnose our spiritual health so that we, and he, he does that out of love for us, so that we can correct easily correctable problems before it's too late. And that's what's going to happen, or we're going to see him doing in this passage we're going to be focusing on this morning. So let's turn, first of all, to Isaiah 32. We're going to look at Isaiah 32, 33, 34, 35, but especially chapter 33. And if you need a Bible, I want you all to have a Bible here. So go ahead and raise your hand, and we'll bring one to you. Isaiah 32 is on page 592 in the Bibles that we're passing out right now. We're going through a series in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet raised up by God around the year 700 B.C., and God gave him his words to speak to the nation of Israel. And so we're working through this section by section. We're going to look at Isaiah 32 through 35 today. Let me give you just a brief overview. It's these diagrams that are in, in your, all those arcs that are in your notes there. Here's the overview of, of the section we're covering. First of all, in chapter 32, verses 1 through 8, what Isaiah says to Israel is that in your distant future, way down the road, God's going to raise up the Messiah. He's going to bring you your Messiah. And by the Messiah's power, he is going to change your hearts and bring you back to God as a nation. And that still is in the, in the way distant future from us now at this point. But that's chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. Then, Isaiah says, from chapter 32, verse 9, all the way through to chapter 33, verse 12, he says, before that happens, Israel, God's going to bring Assyria upon you to punish you for your sin. And after that, God's going to punish Assyria for her sin. So there's a whole section there, 32, 9 through 33, 12, about how God's going to punish Israel and then Assyria for sin. Then in chapter 33, verse 13 through 22, that's the section we're going to focus on today, God calls Israel, now think about the judgment that I've, that in terms of the judgment I'm bringing upon you and upon Assyria, I judge sin 
Therefore, I want you to raise a crucial question. There is a crucial question God wants Israel to raise. We'll look at that in a moment, what that is. Then in chapters 34 and 35, God says that his judgment is going to turn the fruitful land into a desert, judgment for sin, but his mercy then will turn that desert into a a luscious garden. So that's chapters 34 and 35. Okay, there's an overview. Now this morning, I want us to focus on this crucial diagnostic question that God gives us to evaluate our, our spiritual lives. What is this crucial question? Look at Isaiah 33, verses 13 and 14. Hear you who are far off what I have done in judging Israel and Assyria. And you who are near, acknowledge my might in judging sin. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. And here's the question. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Here's what's going on. God says to Israel, think about the judgment I brought upon you for your sin, the judgment I brought upon Assyria for her sin. Understand, these are just foretastes of the judgment I'm going to bring upon humanity for her sin in the distant future. Judgment is coming. Everlasting burnings are coming. So the burning question is, end of verse 14, who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? In other words, who can escape God's final judgment? That's the question God wants Israel to raise. Who can escape God's Final judgment. Crucial question for Israel. Crucial question for, for us to ask. Now here's why this is so crucial to ask. Deep down inside, you know, if you're honest with yourself, that there's a God who's all-powerful, who's sovereign over everything, who is perfectly good, fully loving, faithful, awesome, infinite God. And if we're honest... We know, not just that there's a God, but that we've all responded to him wrongly. We all have. All of us have. None of us have loved God supremely. None of us have trusted him fully. None of us have have devoted our lives to honoring this amazing being who made us and created us. None of us have obeyed him joyfully. We've harmed other people by our words. We've exalted ourselves by our boasting. We've dishonored him by lying. None of us has responded to God appropriately. If you're honest with yourself, none of us has. And so we, we see in this book that God, at the end of history, is going to punish sin. We all have sinned. So we're on a trajectory towards this time when God's going to punish sin with everlasting burnings. We've sinned, and so the question is, who can survive that? You might be thinking, it's hard to think about that. I mean, we've got the Super Bowl coming up. You know, we've got our iPhones. We've got big games being played today. What am I going to cook for dinner tomorrow night? Okay, and right now, as soon as we start raising questions like this, spiritual warfare is breaking out here. Satan wants you very much not to think about this question. But here's the analogy I thought of. It's like you're on the Titanic, Cruising along, luxury liner, you know, first maiden voyage. 
And somebody comes to you and says, I've got, I've got a problem. Look, here's the map. Here's the compass. Here's where you're going. Here's a big iceberg. You are going to hit the iceberg. This trajectory, you're going to hit the iceberg. What are you going to do about it? Are you just going to say, oh, that's just, come on, let's just, you know, where's the party? Or would you take it seriously? And see, God, in his love for you, has you here this morning. Right now, this morning, this is no accident. You are here this morning because he loves you. He cares about you to say, you're on a boat that's going to hit the iceberg. Are you just going to, like, go on with life as usual? Or are you going to raise the question, who can survive everlasting burnings? Who can survive God's judgment? Ask that question. God wants you to, he just wants to take hold of you so that you're just like, I've got to know the answer to that question. This is the infinitely most important question you will ever ask. Because you are on that trajectory and the day will come, I guarantee it, when you will stand before a holy, pure, righteous, awesome God. And you've sinned. I've sinned. And at that point, you will need to have asked the question, who can survive God's judgment? That's the question. So what is the answer? Who can escape God's judgment? Now, I want to warn you, this answer that Isaiah gives is going to shock some of you. Okay? If you've read your Bible some, and we're going to talk about what he means and how this all fits together. So I'm glad you're sitting down. Put your seatbelts on. Look at what he says in verse 15. Here's the, well, let's just read it, starting at the last half of verse 14. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Here's the answer. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, who despises the gain of oppressions, who shakes his hands lest they hold a bribe, who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. So who can escape God's judgment? Those who walk righteously. Those who trust God. Those who love God above everything else. Those who hate sin. Those who love the people around them. Those who walk uprightly are the ones who are going to escape God's judgment. Those who speak uprightly. Who speak with love and kindness. Who don't slander. Who speak honorably of God. Who love to exalt God and His Son, Jesus. Those who despise the gain of oppressions. You, you don't take advantage of the poor and you care for the needy. Those who shake their hands lest they hold a bribe. You won't let personal gain, the thought of personal gain, cause you to do something unjust or cause you to show partiality towards someone. And then this last line is a little hard to understand. Who stops his ears from hearing of bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking on evil. I looked at a couple of commentaries on this one. And they were helpful in saying it's the idea that you so much want to distance yourself from bloodshed and from violence. You don't even hear about it or see it. You want nothing to do with it. So that's who's going to avoid God's everlasting burnings. Now, do you know why I warned you about how shocking this would be if you've read your Bible? Because you maybe have never thought about what Isaiah is saying here. The only people who will avoid God's judgment are those who have a certain level of obedience 
a certain level of moral transformation in their lives, a certain level of works. Use that word. Those are the only people who are going to be able to escape God's judgment. And this might shock you because you've read passages, if you've read the Bible much, which tell you that the only way to avoid God's judgment is not by earning it through your works. Anybody read a passage like that in the Bible? Okay. What passage comes to your mind that tells you that you're not saved by works, but that you're saved through trusting Jesus Christ? What passage comes to your mind? Let's turn there. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Let's just, I want to hold up Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right with Isaiah 33. And let's think about this. What's going on here? What Isaiah is going to teach us, and we're going to see other biblical authors teaching us, may take you a little deeper into your understanding of salvation, and it's going to be rich. It's been a feast for me this week to ponder these things. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's page 976 in the Bibles we just passed out. You'll see why there's a seeming clash between Isaiah 33 and Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved. God's grace doing something that you do not deserve. Okay? By grace you've been saved from God's future judgment. That's what saved means here, right? For by God's grace you've been saved from God's future judgment through faith. Through trusting Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. The grace, the saving, the faith. This is God's gift to you. He gave it to you. You didn't deserve any of it. He gave it to you. Not a result of works. It's not something that you earned by being good enough through obedience, through a certain level of moral transformation, through a certain level of works. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And yet Isaiah said that those who escape future judgment are those who have a certain level of moral transformation, a certain level of obedience, a certain level of works. Huh. Maybe the Old Testament message is different than the New Testament message. People teach that. I don't think that's what's going on here because Jesus taught this exact same thing that Isaiah taught. Look at Matthew 25. Parable of the sheep and the goats. This is page 831 in the Bibles we passed out. Matthew 25, verses 31. I'm going to read the whole parable. So you see, our Jesus taught what Isaiah taught. In fact, he gave Isaiah to teach what Isaiah taught. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Y'all there? I should make sure you can follow along. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. So this is the end of history. Jesus is going to come back. He will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. You will be there. And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So all of humanity divided. Right group, left group. Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
You, you are, you're going to miss judgment. Come into the kingdom. Why? Verse 35. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, here's the other group, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me, naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous, the righteous into eternal life. So in this passage, who are those who escape eternal judgment? Those who feed and clothe and visit the least of Jesus' brothers. Right? Do you see that? Who are those who do not escape eternal judgment? Those who did not feed or clothe or visit the least of Jesus' brothers. In this passage, the dividing line between those who escape judgment and those who do not is some level of obedience, some level of moral transformation. Do you see that? Many passages in the New Testament teach this. Now, how does that fit then with the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9? It fits. It fits beautifully. Okay, let's turn back to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, page 976. I want to show you three truths from this passage, which if you hold them together, and I'm, I'm asking God to give me grace to explain this really clearly, there's two errors you could pursue at this point. One is to say, I need a certain level of moral transformation to avoid judgment, so I'm going to, okay, that does it. I'm going to be good, and I'm going to be so good that God will owe me Forgiveness, oh me, heaven, I'm going I'm to make myself good. That is a path of destruction. You will not be able to do it. The other error, though, which I want to make sure we avoid also as a church, is thinking, I can be genuinely saved without any level of transformation, without any level of obedience. No, you can't. I'll show you why, I hope, as God gives me grace here. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, let's read those verses again. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that, one, so that no one may boast. Okay, first truth. We are not saved from judgment by our works. We are not saved from judgment by our works. That is, you could never obey enough, make yourself good enough, so that God says, okay, you're good enough now. You can come into heaven. Two reasons why you can't do that. One is your past sin. Okay, illustration I always use is if you park wrong downtown, San Jose PD checks your car, you don't go to the judge and say, okay, judge, I did park wrong, but I'm going to park right the rest of my life, so I don't need to pay a fine, right? No, because the past parking ticket, you've got to pay the fine. And so your past sins deserve eternal punishment. So you can be, if you could be perfect the rest of your life, you'd still deserve eternal burnings, but you can't be perfect the rest of your life because even, in, even as a saved person in your best moments, there still is indwelling sin tainting your obedience. Right? So just we've got to clear the deck here. You cannot make yourself good enough for God to owe you heaven. So just don't even, don't, don't try going that way. That's not the right way to go. Okay? So then how are we saved? It sounds hopeless. It is hopeless in terms of you being good enough to be saved. It is not hopeless when there's a God who's overflowing with grace and mercy and love. How are we saved? We are saved from judgment through faith in Christ. That's how we're saved. It is no matter how sinful you are at this moment, no matter what you did yesterday or last night or last year, no matter how sinful you are, the moment that you sincerely turn to Jesus Christ and trust him as your savior and your Lord and your treasure, you just trust him. Save me, change me, help me. I'm turning to you. I have nowhere else to go. Help me, okay? Just like Heidi said to her friend, okay? Help me. The moment, the moment you do that, the instant that you do that, all kinds of things change in you. All of your past, present, and future sin was punished in Jesus 2,000 years ago. So all of your punishment is paid in full at that, po- at that moment. And forgiveness is poured out upon you. For all of your sin, so all the, all the punishment you deserve poured out upon Jesus, you're perfectly, completely forgiven. You are clothed with his perfect moral righteousness. So that just like Dave was talking about this morning, when God sees you, he sees you as clothed with Jesus' perfect righteousness. He sees you as perfect morally in Christ. And at that moment, your eternity in heaven is secured through his death on the cross. So the moment you turn and trust Jesus, all these things change. Third truth, genuine faith in Christ always results in a changed heart and growing obedience. That is, the moment that you put your trust in Christ, something else also happens. At that moment, God brings his power upon you and changes your heart and starts a moral renovation project. Okay, a moral transformation project that by his unstoppable power, he will keep growing the rest of your life. 
That's what happens. Where do I get that from these verses? I get it from verse 10. Look at verse 10. Okay. For we, who's we? Those who trust Jesus. We who trust Jesus are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's go through that verse just a phrase at a time. We, those trusting Christ, are his workmanship. In other words, the moment you trust Christ, God goes to work in you. God starts working by his unstoppable power in you. This is such good news. See, if you, if you haven't been born again yet, saved yet, you can look inside yourself and say, I'm never going to be able to live the Christian life. Look at me. And you're looking at the wrong place. Look at him. His power goes to work, changing you the moment you trust him. You don't have the power to do it. <laughs> you don't. Total discouragement comes from looking at yourself thinking, do I have the gumption to live the Christian life? No! You look to him. We are his workmanship. Your, any obedience you've had over this last week, whose workmanship was that? God's. Christ's. Now, you're not passive. Okay, make me obey. He's not making me obey, okay? No, no, you're not passive. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work, knowing that it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay? He's the primary cause. We're the secondary cause. That's a whole other topic. But anyway, all right. So we are his workmanship. Next phrase. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. This word created does not refer to your creation with physical life. This describes the creation work God does when you're born again with spiritual life. The moment you put your trust in Christ, he creates. A new heart in you, out of nothing, new hearts. And he creates growing obedience. He creates these things in Christ Jesus for good works. So he creates in you a new heart, which longs to love God above all else and loves to trust Jesus Christ and glorify him and hates sin and loves your brothers and sisters and the, and the needy that you meet last phrase good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them you know the obedience that you've had this last week god prepared that obedience before the foundation of the world he prepared your this last week's obedience he prepared that for you before the foundation of the world, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So who does God do this for? Who's the we? It's we who have faith. It's not we as a result of works. It's we who have faith. Do you see that in Ephesians 2, 8, 9? I'm not hearing that very confidently. Are you, are, you, are you hearing that? Okay, who's the we who has this amazing transformation brought about by God in us in verse 10? It's we, not as a result of our works, but we who are trusting Jesus Christ. Here's an illustration. I've used this somewhat, I think, before, but let me just try it again. Okay, when you go to Costco, you always have to buy more than one thing, right? Okay, it's part of, you save so much money that way. <laughs> anyway, okay. 
so you can't just buy one jar of Comet. You have this jar always has to come with this jar. Okay, can or whatever you what do you call these things? Cans. Okay. All right. So you can't just buy one. You, they always come together. That's how salvation is. Faith always comes with works. Always results in a level of moral transformation. Faith always results in a level of obedience. Faith always results in a changed life. A perfect life? No. Okay. A changed life? Yes. There's never in the universe saving faith in Christ, which isn't connected, cause, effect, with a changed heart and growing obedience. Never. Also, never is there a changed heart and growing obedience, which is not connected with faith. Both of them are always together. Faith works. Faith and obedience, always together. Okay, now... Make sure I'm seeing this really clearly. So, when you're, the, the reason that you're in heaven, the basis for you being in heaven is not your works, okay? Because you can never be good enough as the basis for going to heaven. So, again, are any of you going to go there and try to make yourself good enough to go to heaven? Thank you. No, okay? The basis is because you're trusting the one who was perfectly righteous and who paid for all of your sins on the cross. You're connected to him by faith. That's the basis. Jesus Christ and you're trusting him. Okay, quiz time. What's the basis for you going to heaven? When you stand before God and he says, why should you be in heaven? Your answer is because Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin, oh, I'd left a crimson stain. He washed me white as snow. I've trusted in your Holy Son. I'm connected to him by faith. He says, welcome, right? That's the basis. Now, God will also say, so that all of humanity can see, is there any demonstration? I'm not sure if exactly how he'll phrase this question, but he'll say, <laughs> is there anything to demonstrate that you had saving faith? What's the demonstration of your saving faith. You changed my heart. And you, you worked growing obedience in me. And the world, and he'll show before the world, maybe, this isn't in the Bible, but he'll, he'll say, look, look at this. Look at this forgiveness for Jesus' sake. Look at this praying with her kids, right? For Jesus' sake, okay? Look, look at this speaking the gospel in the workplace for Jesus' sake. Look at this caring for the poor for Jesus' sake. So, look. So, the basis is Jesus and your trust in him. The demonstration that that's valid is your obedience. Does that make sense? So crucial to keep these together on one level, but separated on another level. Okay? Faith in Christ always results in a changed heart and growing obedience. Let me see if I can help you feel this a little bit more. I want you to feel that, I mean, psychologically, emotionally, it's impossible for a human being to see Jesus Christ as he is and to trust him and not be changed. God does that. So, so just think in your own mind of looking at Jesus Christ, seeing him as he is. You're, 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 you're looking at Jesus, you're seeing him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God, and because he loved you so much, he loved you, 
He was willing to humble himself, lower himself, low, 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 low to become a man. Here's talking about God becoming a man because he loves you. When you were his enemy, when you deserved only judgment from him, and Jesus looked at you, looked at me as I was shaking my fist in his face, and I want to live my life my own way. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save Steve Fuller. And he became a man, and then he was nailed to the cross and suffered on the cross. The wrath of God for Steve Fuller's sins poured out upon him because he loves me. And he died. And he rose from the dead, breaking sin's power in Steve Fuller's life and purchasing resurrection, eternal life for Steve Fuller. Okay, and so when you, when I, when you look at Jesus in his love, in his mercy, in his saving power, in his forgiveness that he offers, in his heart change that he offers, and you see Jesus Christ and you trust him, it is impossible for your heart to stay the same. You will want to glorify him in your workplace. You will. You will want to obey him for the glory of his name and sexual purity. You will. You will hate it when you dishonor him by slandering or gossiping. You'll be so full of joy when you've had a chance to speak of him to a neighbor. Your heart will be changed. Faith in Jesus by the power of the Spirit, see that there's the power of the Spirit that's working when you look at Jesus, results in a changed heart and growing obedience. They always go together. Does that make sense? Okay, now, just a couple of other... I, I put this in your notes. No one goes to heaven because of their obedience. Okay? But, no one goes to heaven without obedience. Do you understand why? It's not because, well, without obedience, you aren't good enough to go to heaven. That's not why. Are are we clear? It's because obedience, imperfect, growing obedience, shows that you're trusting Jesus. And trusting Jesus is the ticket. Trusting Jesus is the ticket. Are we clear? Okay, any questions about this at this point before we... There's one more thing from Isaiah I want to show you, but this is so important that you get this. Do you see the two errors you could go? Do you see how you could read Isaiah 33, Sermon on the the Sheep and the Goats parable, and say, okay, I've I've got to be good enough to go to heaven, so let's get to work. Do you see how you could go that route? Wrongly. Do you also see how it would be wrong to say that you can be genuinely saved without any obedience? Because there's no obedience that shows that the faith is not sincere and genuine. So those are two errors we want to avoid. So the path we want to go is we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That's why I heard somebody say it. That wasn't original to me. It's pretty good though, huh? Okay. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. It's demonstrated by a changed heart and growing obedience. Are we clear? Oh, church, this is so important. Thank you, Heidi. Okay. Any questions?
we don't start with faith and then move on into obedience. Every day it's faith resulting in obedience. Is that what you're, what you're asking? Okay, what, what, what do we do? Let's say there's somebody you need to forgive at work. If, if, uh, if obedience, like forgiveness, results from faith, then where is, that, where is the forgiveness going to come from? Faith in Jesus. So the battle for obedience is won on the battleground of faith. Okay, this is more than you're asking for, but what I do is I'll come before the Lord Jesus and I'll say, this person hurt me, caused me loss, which makes me mad, and it was unjust, which makes me madder. But I want to look to you right now by faith, and I want to see the, the, the treasures that I have in you forever. And when I see that clearly, the loss they cost me is, is uh, assuaged. It's, uh, it's lessened, right? And when I see the, the sheer mercy you've shown me, I'm not going to say this person deserves to, you know, to whatever. I just want what's coming to me. It's, it's mercy. So it's faith in Jesus the, the lavish blessings he's given me and the free mercy he's shown me. When I trust Jesus, my heart is changed so I can forgive. Faith results in forgiveness in that case. So what role do we have in that? Tons, right? Paul says, I buffet my body to make it my slave lest I would be disqualified, right? So Paul is, is fighting, right? Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the... the those things, right, okay? And it's a battle. Okay, so it's not like, well, we, you know, we just do like half the effort and see if, if he's going to come through. No, there's a mystery here. We are 100% engaged in fighting the fight of faith for obedience. We, we fight to trust Jesus. Obedience flows from trusting him. The fight is to trust him. When I'm not forgiving, I'm not trusting him. I mean, the, the, the meta picture is, see if this is answering what you're asking, when God, when we trust Jesus Christ and his hearts, our hearts are filled with his love, then when we see suffering, we will want to relieve suffering. That will be in our hearts. We will, be, we will be people flowing through the world, and every time we see suffering, it's like we're just going to be drawn to it, especially eternal suffering. Especially eternal suffering. But hunger, yes. Nakedness, yes. Sheep and the goats, yes. Right? But especially eternal suffering, which is infinitely worse than those things. So we want to relieve all suffering. So wherever we go, we're, we're, we're taking care of suffering because we're trusting Jesus. He's filling us. He's filling us. So I don't, I mean, I, you're more generous to give because you don't need more money to make your heart happy. You have him making your heart happy. And anyway. Uh, there's one more thing from Isaiah 33, just relatively briefly. <laughs> relatively. Um, there's one more question. I want to go back to Isaiah now, okay? Back to Isaiah 33. One more question he wants to answer, and that is, what will the redeemed, the saved from eternal burnings, what will these people enjoy forever? It's a crucial question because obedience is costly. It is costly. It will cost you to fight sexual temptation. It's costly. It'll cost you to care for the poor. It'll, it'll cost you. you. You will do without. It'll cost you to love your neighbor and share the gospel with them or take them food or help them find a job. It's costly to take time to read God's word and to pray. It's costly to deal with abortion issues. And the list just goes on and on. 
So Isaiah ends this section by telling us what we will receive. We who, remember, it's we who have these things, not as the basis for going to heaven, but as the outflow of the faith which puts us connected to Jesus, who is the basis for going to heaven. Okay, listen to what he says, verse 16. He will dwell on the heights. In verse 5, that's referring to dwelling with God. God's on the heights. He will dwell on the heights. His place of defense will be the fortresses of rocks. Total defense around him. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. He'll be provided for. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. That's God is revealed in Jesus. You will see Jesus Christ face to face. They will see a land that stretches afar, the new heavens and the new earth, as I think what that's referring to. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? Okay, what that's talking about is Israel had Assyria come and knock on the door and say, pay up your taxes, pay up your tributes, or we're going to kill 50 of your people. And so it was always terrorizing when they would go through this. What Isaiah is saying is, All your past trials, all the past cost, all the past difficulties, they'll all be past. Okay? Your heart will muse on those past things. They will, where are they now? They're gone. They're past. No more to be experienced. Verse 19. You will see no more the insolent people. Speaking of the Assyrians, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. You'll no no longer face invaders. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent, whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley, Assyrian ships, with oars can go, nor majestic enemy ships can pass. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Jesus Christ is worth every cost that you will face in the path of obedience. You will face cost. It's war. It'll cost you. Many of you know that by experience. Jesus Christ is worth it all. This is what you will receive. You don't just miss judgment. You get God revealed in the person of Jesus. God who will be to us a place of broad rivers and streams. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. In fact, what I want to do is I want to invite some of you to come forward and kneel down here just to pray. I feel like this is something that that the Lord may have as a benefit for you. Nothing especially holy about being up here, but but it can be helpful just to take a step and to say, um, I want to make this real, Lord, between me and you. Some of you, maybe you're looking at your life. And you thought you had faith, but you realize that, there's not, that there isn't any, any of this, any transformation. And the Lord, in his love and mercy, may be showing you today that the faith that you thought you had isn't sincere. And it's not real. Okay? That would be a, a sweet blessing from the Lord if that's true. 
He loves you enough to show that to you if that's the case. That's why he gave the sheep and the goats and these other passages. He's given us a way to diagnose our spiritual lives so that we can see the health of our spiritual lives. And if there's no transformed hearts that you love Jesus Christ more than anything else, and you long to glorify him and you hate to sin, if that's not in your heart, you're probably not trusting Jesus. And so the good news is you can trust him from the heart sincerely right now. And the moment you turn and put your trust in him, his power will come upon you. He will go to work and change you. We are his workmanship. So if that's you, I want to invite you forward. Also, some of the others of you, you might just, as we were talking this morning, that the Holy Spirit was pointing out to you, yes, there's areas of obedience, but there is a growing area of disobedience in your life. There's a growing area of disobedience in your life. Deal with it. Deal with it. Sin is a cancer which will kill. God will kill it for us if we come to him by faith. We confess it, he kills it, but you've got to bring it to him. So that may be you. If that's you, then I want you to come forward in a second so we can pray for you. There may be others of you where, where you're just, you are tired in the battle. You've been hit with the cost, maybe of obedience, maybe of, of being faithful in trials. And I just think the Lord wants to pour out upon you a fresh sense that Jesus Christ is worth it all. So that you'll get comfort, you'll get encouragement. Lord, I want to pray for those who've come forward here and those who haven't but are doing business with you in their hearts right now. And, and I include me in this prayer too, Lord. Lord, I pray that right now each of us would be turning to you with honest, genuine, authentic trust in you, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. Apart from your death on the cross, apart from your righteous life, we could be as good as we possibly could be, and we'd never, we'd never be saved because of our sinfulness. So we trust you right now, Jesus, as our Savior. We trust you alone. It's trusting you alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. And Lord, we trust you as our Lord right now. You are the king. We're not. You are the Lord. We're not. We want to lay every area of our lives at your feet now. We say, would you change that area? Would you strengthen me in that area? Would you empower me in that area? Would you forgive me and help me in that area? We lay our lives at your feet. Ask you as Lord to change us, to make us even more of your workmanship, Lord. And we trust you, Jesus, as our treasure. Your glory is our joy. Your honor, your fame is our passion. We want to glorify you in how we fight against lust and how we care for the poor and how we advance the gospel to unreached Muslim people groups. We want to glorify you in everything we do because your glory is our joy. So we trust you as Savior. We trust you as Lord. We trust you as treasure. Oh, Lord, rock our neighborhoods and our workplaces and this city through this church and all the believers in this city, Lord, I pray for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen.